0: Hello and welcome to the R.I. Science Podcast. This month we consider why people lie and how fake news has become a global phenomenon in the era of post-truth politics. Bringing together the fields of human evolution and current affairs, our expert speakers, Richard Byrne and Evan Davis, together with host Rachel Wheely, discuss whether the ability to communicate evolved to pass on facts or to deceive, why deception is so widespread in modern public discourse, and what we can do about
1: it. Truth has been a cornerstone of classical civilizations, major religions, and communities across the world. As a comedian, my job is to travel the length and breadth of the country lying to audiences, but in order to make them laugh. But like most comedians, I expect the politicians and the people running the country to be scrupulously honest. I remember growing up in the 90s, there was a huge scandal breaking around President Bill Clinton who said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Now, that turned out not to be true. And that one single lie caused the impeachment of the president and nearly brought down the government. And here we are 20 years later, in 2018, two years since the Oxford English Dictionary called post-truth the word of the year, and we now have a president of the United States of America who seems to lie routinely and has almost been given a mandate to do so by an electorate who like the cut of his jib they don't seem particularly worried about whether what he's saying is true or not. And here in Britain, I don't think we're doing that much better. Uh, We have uh, the Remain and the Leave camps both criticised for untruth during the Brexit campaign. And if we look at the animal kingdom, we find that truth is not held up as absolutely critical to staying in a a community and being accepted by a group. So the big question tonight is, whilst our communication has evolved, has it evolved to pass along facts? Or has it evolved to allow us to deceive? And is that something that we should be worried about? I've got two fantastic speakers to introduce you to this evening. We have Professor Richard Byrne, Emeritus Professor of Psychology from St. Andrews University. He studies non-human cognition in animals as diverse as woodpeckers and domestic pigs, but specialises in non-human primates, and has a book that he's written recently called Evolving Insight. And we have Evan Davis, economist, broadcaster, dragon wrangler, and author of his own book, Post-Truth, Why We Have Reached Peak Bullshit and What We Can Do About It. <laughs> I just want to get that out there early. It's in the title of the book. I'm allowed to say it. So, it should be a fascinating evening where we can learn a bit about truth, what it is, if and how it evolved, and whether it's really important anyway. So, please put your hands together and join me in welcoming your first speaker for the evening, Professor Richard Byrne.
2: Well, as Rachel explained, I'm going to give you something of the evolutionary background against which we can relate, possibly, uh, modern human developments. Imagine you're a monkey. As a monkey, you probably live in a group, most monkeys live in groups in order to have safety from predators by various mechanisms, dilution of risk, uh, spotting the enemy before they, they get to you and so forth, which is fine, it's essential for survival. On the other hand, living in a group has, brings difficulties because the other monkeys are of your species, they are your worst possible competitors. They all happen to have the same diet as you, for instance. If you're a male, all the other males would like to mate with the same females. Uh, If you're a female, you you would be competing again for the resources for your offspring against all those other females. It's, It's very bad news. How are you going to improve your chances as an individual monkey living in a group? Well, there's one obvious way of doing so, and that is brute force, fighting. That's fine if you happen to be the strongest and you know it, but what about everybody else? What about the ones who would simply lose fights? Clearly, it's not a good strategy for everybody. But alternatively, perhaps there's a subtle way of competing, by using deception, fake news as we tend to call it nowadays, misrepresenting your intentions, hiding and concealing your body or your ideas, Uh, uh, misleading signalling, which I suppose is what Rachel was referring to Mr Trump doing. Here's an example of uh, deception in primates. Um, These two gorillas, rather fine, handsome, silverback male on the right, and the one on the left is a female, in fact, the highest-ranked female in this small gorilla group. But that male may be a very nice chap, but he is not the leading male of the group. He has no real right to mate with her. Nevertheless, what she's doing, standing at 90 degrees to him and flagging her head from side to side, is soliciting him to uh, engage uh, in a sexual relation. The result of that was presumably what she was trying to achieve. The two animals stayed behind as the group drifted away until they were out of sight uh, and out of hearing of the rest. But on this occasion, perhaps not out of mind, because silverback male was in fact suspicious as to where these two individuals had gone and prowled back to investigate. Uh, with the result, that they were caught in the act. <laughs> and they're not actually looking at the nosy photographer, me, their eyes are directed over my left shoulder to where the silverback has just appeared. And uh, particularly the female on the right, to me, perhaps anthropomorphically looks somewhat apprehensive, uh, <laughs> she would certainly have reason to be because what happens in cases like this if she's caught secretly mating with the wrong male it's she who will get beaten up and she was uh, chased around by the silverback on this occasion now this is a behavior that we call tactical deception and the boring formal definition is is worth mentioning acts from the normal repertoire, deployed such that another individual is likely to misinterpret what the acts signify to the advantage of the agent, leaving it open as to whether the agent, the deceiver, actually understands that or just simply does it. But the effect only works to the agent's advantage if somebody misunderstands. Deception, of course, is is fairly familiar in biology, but it's usually what you might call strategic deception, where an animal or even a plant is committed to some deceptive form or deceptive behaviour fashioned by evolution. And examples of that, which are very familiar from, you know, biology 101, might be, for example, this pile of leaves, And if you look closely, one of them is actually a moth, not a leaf at all. Uh, Moths do tend to try and look like uh, bits of dead bark or trees. And here's one that's been placed or landed on a surface where its it's camouflage doesn't work very well. Uh, If it's threatened by a predator, it flicks open its wings just automatically. And that looks like two rather fierce eyes in a red background, which might give the moth that little chance to escape because the predator would be disconcerted. Uh, Another example um, is the way that in displays of chimpanzees, probably something you've often seen on nature programmes, the hair is erected. This ability to pilo-erect makes the animal, if it does it, look very much bigger. Well, it might be that it's a bluff, that it's resembling an animal that's much bigger and more muscular than it really is. But the problem with bluffs is they get called. And in an important matter like dominance in a group of chimpanzees, which has implications for mating success, I would suggest it's very unlikely that it functions by bluff. But there's an alternative. It's very hard to see what's underneath that long hair. So it may function simply by ambiguity, concealing what's really there, making it risky for a challenger, to, uh, to uh, a potential challenger, unless he has some private information as to the strength of the individual. So it may be a good strategy by withholding information, being economical with the truth, we'd probably say in human terms. Here's a few examples to go back to tactical deception, deceptions which are deployed uh, to manipulate others. Here's a case uh, in baboons. Baboons I was studying at the time uh, in southern Africa. One baboon was being chased by an aggressive and higher-ranked male. I was never aware of what he'd done wrong, but he was certainly in trouble. As the little cartoon at the top, drawn by a colleague, David Bygott, uh, shows rather nicely. What happened, though, was not that he got caught. Suddenly, he jumped up and gave an alarm call and looked round. As if he'd seen something alarming, which for these groups of baboons might have been another troop or might have been a predator... Well, I had high-quality binoculars, and as far as I could see, there wasn't any. And indeed, the higher-rank, aggressive baboon seemed to come to that conclusion after a few minutes of staring round in puzzlement, by which time he'd forgotten to attack the individual he was chasing. Fake news? It can work. Another example from the uh, same group of baboons was a young baboon who came across uh, an, an older adult who had found some very high quality food. There wasn't very much food at that time of year. This was in a mountain area at a cold, dry, wintry period when there was very low qualities of food around. But this female had found some good stuff. The youngster stared, and nothing much happened, and then suddenly the youngster screamed as if it had been attacked. Well, I was there. It hadn't been. It was misrepresenting the situation. But his mother was somewhere away, and she came charging in. She hadn't been able to see what I had, that there had been no threat to her precious youngster, and she came charging in and chased the other adult who was lower rank to her, although... uh, much, much larger and and more formidable than the little baboon. Well, you might think if the baboon had genuinely been frightened, it would have been sitting there recovering its shock. Not a bit of it. He went straight in and started eating the food from the hole, revealing somewhat that his plan was uh, not related to uh, fear but food. Here's an example that came from the work of a Swiss primatologist, Kummer, He studied these baboons over many years, a different species of baboon that lives in little harems, uh, rather like uh, mountain gorillas do. The leading male of this harem, uh, depicted in the cartoon there with a T on his back, the target of the the deception, um, would be very possessive of any of his females. And what Comer noticed was a particular female spent about 20 minutes wriggling her bottom over a distance of, I think he said, less than two metres. She wriggled and wriggled. And his attention as an observer was drawn to that because he couldn't at first see why she was doing it. But gradually it became clear because she was wriggling in such a way that she could groom a... Presumably handsome and attractive young male who she should not have been consorting with. She was visible to her Harem leader male. She was not out of sight, but uh, her hands were out of sight, as was the, the youngster who she couldn't, she was not supposed to be grooming. So, as far as uh, the researcher could see, what she had done was to position herself in a way to selectively conceal the uh, incriminating aspects of the behaviour she wanted to engage in. Those are a few examples. There are a lot of other cases. They follow what you might call a few simple rules. Firstly, the deceptions are aimed at specific targets the fake scream will only work if the target is lower rank than the mother. It's not something that a young baboon can go off and do all the time and profit from it. It has to be rather specifically targeted. The circumstances have to be specific too. So, for example, uh, the fake scream in that example I showed you really only works if your mother can't see what's going on. It wouldn't work if she was there. It's no good choosing your target when you haven't taken account of the position of your your protector. Deceptions like this have to be deployed at low frequency, as the the famous uh, uh, children's story about the boy who cried wolf makes clear. And in the case of that fake predator example, it would apply very much so. If that individual spent his time simulating predators every time he got into any sort of difficulty, individuals would soon habituate and start to ignore him. And in all these cases, because the targets are members of the same group, they're individuals who are always around. So deception has to be pretty subtle and undetected to be any use. If it's detected, the individual's likely to be punished for what it's got away with anyway. Compare that to the strategic deception of the the automatic flicking out of the wings of that eyed hawk moth, where it only has to work once to save the individual's life. It's never going to meet the same predator again, as long as it survived that one incident. It's a very different sort sort of deception. To achieve tactical deception, as these various monkeys do, you certainly need good perception because you've got to be able to identify individual monkeys because of those rules that I mentioned. You have to know who you're deploying deception against. And we have independent evidence that monkeys do recognise others as different individuals. You must have to have what you could call good imagination, the ability to somewhat imagine the 3D geometry of the situation. Think of that female Hamadryas baboon who is grooming an individual behind a rock. She has to understand something about how it looks from another position. Monkeys must have a good memory too uh, to store the knowledge of other monkeys. For example, their ranks, who their friends are or or their kin, uh, and any particular interactions they've had. And again, we have evidence that monkeys have these abilities. And because these are are rather one-off kinds of, of trickery, they're not ones that every individual of the group has ever shown, we believe that they are learned from past experience. So they must be very good at learning because the sort of experience that gives you the ability to uh, uh, trick others like that is a relatively rare occurrence. It's not something that happens every day. For example, consider the young, young baboon who screamed when he hadn't been hurt. He might have learnt, provided on a past occasion... His mother had been nearby but not close and he had really tried to grab food from a bigger and more dangerous individual who had really threatened him. And then because he got a windfall benefit, he might have started doing it again. But that sort of thing doesn't happen every day, even for monkeys who spend a lot of time foraging, so good learning ability is likely. But notice that what I'm not suggesting is that these individuals have necessarily any understanding of the false beliefs that they are actually causing in others, not any need for deliberate planning in advance. Scientists tend to take the simplest explanation if they can get away with it. And what those of us analysing all these data found was that in monkeys, we could get away with it. There was no real evidence of understanding or planning to deceive in monkeys. All of the cases could be accounted for by rapid learning from plausible, if if unusual, past circumstances. There were no telltale signs and there was no evidence of planning tactics to counter being deceived. So there was no evidence in the targets that they envisaged that somebody might be planning to deceive them. The situation is different in great apes. Great apes, that's chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, orangutans. In their deceptions, we did find evidence. Some cases were incredibly hard to dismiss as just learning. They really looked more like planning. Uh, There were cases of countering deception that looked as if individuals envisaged the possibility of trickery. Uh, And, indeed, there has been recent experimental evidence, uh, just last year, in fact, uh, of great apes understanding false beliefs uh, in experimental situations. So, it is somewhat different uh, in apes to monkeys. But, to take a broader view, I think it's fair to say that the, the deception versus the honesty, is really a matter of coincidence. That's not what animals are trying to achieve. So, yes, deceptions all over the place. There's strategic deception that we all learn about in our O-grade biology, there's tactical deception of the kind that I've illustrated in monkeys, and in apes, at least, there is sometimes intentional deception, where individuals plan to deceive others. But, But what about natural animal communication? Surely the word communication suggests honesty? Well, not really, because natural selection favours selfish manipulation of others, not altruistically giving away information. And animal communication is normally now seen as beneficial to the communicator uh, and the truth value of the information is coincidental. That's what I meant by honest, by coincidence. Signals are true only when it it pays the signaller, not for any particular virtue in truth. And even in cases where they do happen to be true, and and we might label them honest, uh, it's probably misleading to use that human term, honesty, because it implies that the animals want others to be honest. The honesty seems to be just as coincidental. It's not really the point. There's no social custom of honesty and truthfulness. So why, you might say, are we so keen on truth? Well, most of us. Um, Suppose, and this is purely speculation, so probably easy to knock down, but uh, in mulling it over, uh, one possibility occurred as to how it might have evolved. Suppose that human ancestors relied on cooperation even more than chimpanzees do. We know that chimpanzees can be very cooperative, but perhaps human ancestors relied on cooperation more. And I think most paleoanthropologists would say, yeah, sure. Suppose also that, at some stage in our ancestry, individuals were apart from others even more than chimpanzees are. Chimpanzees fragment into subgroups and regroup, but a lot of the time they're near other chimpanzees. With larger ranges, perhaps human ancestors, out of each other's way more. That produces a problem, because if you don't know what individuals are doing when you can't check them out, as a monkey can living in a cohesive group, then it's very important to know who you can trust, but you have less opportunity to do so. would be important but difficult to be sure of the trustworthiness of others in your social group. That I would suggest would favour major sanctions for lying or deceit if it's caught, not just because you get away with something but because of getting away with it by being dishonest. With major sanctions then people human ancestors, perhaps, uh, should then be more trustworthy, provided they're uh, in the group. That is the group of individuals who socialise together, what you might call a mutual, I've called here a mutual help group, but a small society of individuals who know, on the whole, can trust, have major sanctions against any violations of trust, uh, and in that circumstance, you can trust everybody. The trouble is we now live in much larger societies, nations, nation-states, even wider than that thanks to uh, the news media and the internet and so forth. And it's perhaps that's why the evolutionary legacy of living in small, trustworthy groups with major sanctions for any violations, we're now rather naturally gullible. And of course, there are no real sanctions for people outside our own immediate social group who get away with lying. So, with that thought, um, I will pass on to Evan for some real data on people.
3: Well, that. To me, that was absolutely fascinating. And um, having written a book about post-truth and bullshit, um, I've just learned uh, an incredible amount, which I wish I'd read before I'd written the book. Um, <laughs> the book was going to be called Peak Bullshit. I started this in 2012, thinking we'd reach peak bullshit, and then suddenly 2016 came along, uh, and the publisher said, you've really got to get it out now. Um, I'm going to use the word bullshit quite a lot, because I think the first thing to say when we come to human societies... Is that we do have particularly in public discourse in the West, have a history and a tradition of quite marked sanctions against direct lying? We can argue about whether that 's changed in the last couple of years, but direct lying is something that politicians are very keen not to do. The broader panoply of deceptive and manipulative techniques in communication, which I call bullshit um, you know, they can get away with that, and so they do, and so, by the way, do we all. So what do I mean by bullshit? Because I think this takes into the sort of realm of what happens in public discourse, what are the things we do. So there is lying, uh, which is a sort of subset of bullshit. Um, there's near-lying, and Rachel, the famous Bill Clinton, I didn't have sexual relations with that woman, Bill Clinton's defence was that wasn't a lie. She had had them with him when you looked at the particular definitions he was using. uh, He hadn't had them with her. That was a kind of going up to a line and not quite going over, so the near lie. Is one. Then you've got a whole gamut of things of like economic economy with the truth, which is just not saying stuff that would leave the wrong impression, um, obfuscation, which is very very common in political discourse, which is just saying something that is irrelevant to the point that you're making that gives the wrong impression, and the most interesting piece, piece of bullshit um, form of bullshit, which was written about and studied by an American philosopher called Harry Frankfurt, first in the 1980s. And a seminal work called On Bullshit, which was the start of bullshit studies as a serious piece of <laughs> discipline. Harry Frankfurt said the difference that, that what defines bullshit for him is what he called disregard for facts. Now, disregard for facts is different for lying. Disregard for facts is the pub boar who's kind of making up stories. He's not really He's not really trying to deceive you to get you to believe the story. He's trying to big up himself to some extent. It's not about the facts. He would like the facts to be true as he says them. The facts are probably easily verifiable if he wanted to make an effort and go and find them. But nevertheless, he says them. It is disregard for facts that is, I think, one of the most striking features of Donald Trump. Donald Trump, in fact, could have been invented to illustrate Harry Frankfurt's paper (laughs) on bullshit written first in the 1980s, because a lot of what Donald Trump says that people are calling lies are so easily verifiably falsified that you have to say something else must be going on when he says them. He doesn't say, I had the biggest electoral college win since Ronald Reagan in order to persuade you he has the biggest electoral college win since Ronald Reagan, because we can look that up on Wikipedia and see his isn't the biggest since President Obama. And so it is something funny and different is going on. So bullshit um, is is a whole complex of things, um, and and disregard for facts should be separated out in our minds from, uh, from lying. Because deceptive techniques and deceptive behaviour comes in a complex pattern of different forms, it is possible. It is possible for American voters at the time of the 2016 election, in the exit poll, the CNN exit poll, it is possible for almost the same number of them to say they trust, they think Donald Trump is trustworthy, as Hillary Clinton. Because one of the interesting features about that election and politics and everything that's going on since is that there are a lot of people who I suspect are represented very heavily in this room who think honesty is about facts and adhering to them. But there are other people who say, well, actually, that is a source of honesty, but there are different sorts of honesty and authenticity and being true to what you believe is a form of honesty as well. And when the Americans came to look at the two candidates in that election, interestingly, a lot of them, I think, found Donald Trump more honest. Because although they knew he was talking crap a lot of the time, they also knew that they could tell he was when he was. (laughs) So it wasn't kind of threatening lies. And Hillary Clinton often came across, this is is my surmise, as inauthentic. And you didn't know what she believed or what she didn't believe, because she often had focus group tested her messaging to make sure it sounded right in the right group. And it's like, oh, um, I don't know whether she believes that or whether she's saying it because some professional messenger has coached her coached her in how to say it properly. Donald Trump, you never really felt that he'd been through that. <laughs> professional guidance and it was very refreshing for a lot of voters and it felt in many respects more honest not less honest even though he disregarded the facts uh, on an industrial scale so that's my sort of opening point bullshit complicated varied and it means you can have different views about which dimension of honesty is the important one at any time and a lot of american voters i think found donald trump's dishonesty his form of bullshit refreshingly different to the old-style political establishment's form of bullshit. And they also found um, uh, solace in some other things which I'm going to come to. Now, I first got into this whole area. So that's my sort of introductory point. It's all about bullshit and different forms. I got into this area, actually, as an economist, because economists really are fascinated in dishonesty. They think it gets in the way of markets functioning properly. You want to sell me your second-hand car... I want to buy a second-hand car. I don't think I can trust anything you say about the quality of the car that you are trying to sell me, so I pay a discount for the car. I will only give less for the car than it's worth if it's a good car, because I just don't know whether it's a good car, and I have no means of verifying whether it's a good car, and I'm certainly not going to believe you when you say it's a good car, because you would say that anyway. Now, that insight about the second-hand car market won an economist a Nobel Prize, and that is no joke. And it turns out to be a really, really powerful insight. And economists ever since have been absolutely obsessed by information dysfunctions in markets. But economists who are kind of embedded in the mindset of evolutionary biology and psychology, economists make very simple assumptions about human beings. They say, we're all basically rational, because we've sort of evolved to be rational. We've all evolved to be rational. If I'm buying a second-hand car from you, I will never, ever believe what you tell me about it because you would say it's good anyway. And I I, I would be dim. I would be stupid to trust you. This is the basic economic model. I would be stupid to trust you. I'm not stupid because we're all rational. And thereby, you will never even bother wasting your breath lying to me because why would you do that if I'm not going to believe you? And that is, I know that sounds weird, but that actually is the the, the sort of the fundamental underpinning of a lot of economic thinking on this. And it is a kind of evolutionarily derived rule of thumb that that it wouldn't be evolutionary stable if I was to believe you when you try and sell me the second-hand car. That would just be my sort of evolutionary... uh, uh, Darwin is going to sort of write me out of the script over a few kind of millennia if I'm stupid enough to believe you. And so let's just assume that we're all rational. And in the world of the rational people, no one believes anything they shouldn't believe, and thus no one wastes their breath trying to persuade us of things that no one believes. Now, like a number of other areas of economic thinking and economic theory, there is some, I think, discrepancy between what we observe about a world deroy, devoid of um, lies, deception and bullshit and the world we observe. So I think the really fascinating thing to ask yourself, the fascinating thing to ask yourself is why is there so much bullshit in public discourse and in private discourse when as rational, reasonably rational beings you would think there wouldn't be very much? And I'm going to offer you two answers here um, which I think both have... A lot, explain a lot of what we see. So, answer number one why is there so much of this rubbish? Is that we're not rational human beings. <laughs> so, that's the first one. And what we find is we have evolved with all sorts of rules of thumb cast into our brains. We have a tendency to cut corners all over the place. If you haven't read Daniel Kahneman's book, Fast Thinking, Slow Thinking, uh, you really should, it was, it, it's just a book that clarifies, I think, so much about how we think. But he basically says, we have two ways of thinking, the instinctive way and the cognitive conscious way. The instinctive way is what you're doing when you walk home on a route you're familiar with. You don't have to think about, do I turn left here? and You just do it, basically. Driving on a motorway picking up a phone, calling your other half, all those things, instinctive brain. And then we have our cognitive brain, which is when we apply our thinking, when you're navigating on a map to find your way home because you don't know which way you're going. Should I turn left here? That's, and essentially, the essential point is, is that the instinctive brain is much the bigger and more active part of our brain. And it's full of shortcuts and foibles and whims and little things. And the cognitive brain is not really that big a part of the way we are. And the instinctive brain can be be manipulated and have all sorts of mistakes made. And so a lot of the time, what is going on in politics is an appeal to our instinctive brains, uh, away from our cognitive brains. And it's trying to manipulate... Manipulate our beliefs in gentle ways, usually. Manipulate our beliefs to accord with the beliefs of the, 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 the deceiver. Now, I can give you examples from out of politics. OK, so um, my book uh, was originally 20 pounds. But a lot of items you will find are priced at something 99 or something 95. That is a form of bullshit. That's trying to make you think the book is sort of cheaper than it is, right? Or the car, or the clothes, or the milk, or whatever it is. Psychological pricing, it's called. That is a really good example of trying to appeal to our system one brain, our instinctive brain. We see that price, and somehow it looks a bit lower than the round number above it. So that's a really good example of, of, of um, kind of appealing to the whims. Or laughter tracks on comedy programs. Uh, where you actually apply the laughter to the comedy programme, it does make the programme a little bit funnier. That's why they do it. And that's what's that doing? That's appealing to a kind of... Well, there, there's literature on actually what it is and, 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 and why we laugh when other people laugh and things like that. But there's no doubt there's a kind of bandwagon effect that if one laughs, it makes it easier for other people to laugh. And we tend to assume what we're watching is funnier if everyone around us is laughing, and then we tend to to join in. There's a social aspect to laughter. So these are examples. These are examples of the way in which our instinctive brain can be appealed to. It's not all about rationality. The John Lewis Christmas ad is going to come out next week, ladies and gentlemen, an event I look forward to every year (laughs) in which I will cry, probably for the first four or five viewings of that ad. what is that? That's appealing to an emotional reaction. Again, it's not irrational; it's an instinctive, emotional reaction. It's bullshit. Doesn't really tell me very much about John Lewis, but um, but it's going to appeal to me. Now, I think when we come to this, you have to be very careful. Although we're not rational, and you've all accepted that, and I accept that. And we think the economists are stupid to think we're all rational. Of course, that's just a a stupid rule of thumb or a simplifying rule of thumb. The truth is, I think you have to be very careful at thinking people are dim. Because I don't think people have evolved to get this far by being stupid. And sometimes, I mean, there are a lot of stupid people. Don't get me wrong. Let's be quite clear. I mean, a lot. Lots and lots. uh, and there was a lovely quote, think, when you, think about, you know, think about how stupid the average person is, and remember that half the population is stupider than that. Is that? <laughs> um, so, so I'm not going to deny, I'm not going to deny, I am not going to deny that there are stupid people. Absolutely not. However, should you assume people are stupid? That should you assume that because we have these whims, and because our rational brain is a small portion of ourselves, that we are somehow hapless fools, ready to be um, manipulated at all times. And my, my, one of my points, my key takeaway point tonight, is we're not rational, but we're also not stupid. And when I watch that John Lewis ad and cry, I am a willing accomplice to that ad, because I really like John Lewis already. I can think of organisations, shops, political parties, or other things, who, if they tried to run an ad like that, I wouldn't feel, oh, I cry, isn't that lovely? I would think, that is manipulative rubbish, I hate it. It would have exactly the opposite. And that's because, although I am a human being with an irrational brain, I'm also a human being who is capable of overriding the irrational brain from time to time. When I need to. Similarly, this it is true that a coffee may be priced at, you know, $2.95, which may sound comfortable uh, compared to three. So I might be inclined to buy it at $2.95 and not at three. When it comes to buying a house, I don't think it makes that much difference because I am not going to buy the house. Uh, by being fooled by the price, because I'm going to think very hard about buying a house. So I will, in, I will engage my system two brain, even though most of my decisions about coffee or this or that, everyday things, are made, are made instinctively. So my first set of sort of explanations around why the economist's model doesn't persist or doesn't work are around the fact that we are not rational, But I want to posit the suggestion that the rationality assumption is actually not bad for anything that is really very important, that people go through complicated um, sequences or difficult challenges or things that they really need to address, and then it's not as easy just to say we're subject to manipulation. I mean, I'm not saying we're not subject to manipulation, and there are people who are victims of manipulation and who are gullible. But I'm just saying, as an approximation to where the human race is, I wouldn't assume it. And too many people, I think, have a mental model that goes something like this. Boris Johnson says 350 million. Stupid public think it's 350 million. Stupid public vote for Brexit. That kind of chain of of causation is one basically most of my friends believe. And (laughs) I... I think you need to be very careful about assuming that middle bit of the chain. Boris Johnson said 350 million. People did vote as though they believed the 350 million. But you need to be very careful about assuming that they just haplessly believe everything they're told. They may be willing accomplices to the lie in the way that I am a willing accomplice to the John Lewis ad. So it's quite possible. Or you have to ask yourself this. Something funny is going on there because the public were told two things about the cost of the EU. It's 350 million and it's not 350 million. And that was repeated fairly extensively. I know people say we didn't give enough attention to it. It was repeated that it's not 350 million. Then you have to ask yourself, why do people confronted with two propositions choose to believe one of them? That's if, if they did believe one of them. Maybe they didn't even know what 350 million was, because to be quite honest, most people don't really think very much about the billions in there. They don't know whether it's 110 billion or 350 million. These these numbers are actually not things that most people are having to work in every day. So be very careful in assuming people are not sensible, even if we're not a rational human being. So that's the, what the first sort of ex- my discussion of the first explanation as to why. There's so much, so much rubbish. Let me give you a second explanation as to why there's so much bullshit in public discourse and the purpose it serves. I go to dinner at yours. You serve a lovely first course. We enjoy nice conversation, bottle of wine, blah, 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 a nice dinner party. Then you're going to get a kind of gooseberry pie that you've made out the oven for the dessert. It's burnt, not massively burnt. It's sort of edible, but it's really not really that nice. What do I say to you about the pie? I will say, "Oh, it looks lovely." Thank you so much. No, 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 no. Don't worry about that that little bit of crust. No, that no, I'll have it. No, it looks delicious. It's bullshit. The pie's burnt, obviously. Here's the interesting thing. You know that. I know that, you know that I know that, and I know that you know that I know that. (laughs) So no information about the quality of the pie has been exchanged between us. (laughs) Literally none. But does that mean no information has passed between us? No. You've learned something about me. I'm well brought up. (laughs) I know how to behave at a dinner party. Um, I care for your feelings. These are non-negligible, these are non-negligible you know, pieces of information. The bullshit that I have chosen to deploy is informative about the kind of person that I am. Interestingly, it's really subtle. The rules of communication are very subtle. If it was the case that I was your best friend and we hung out together all the time, I would say it's burnt as hell. Just go and throw it away and let's get something. And that would actually be telling you, really subtly, that would actually be telling you, I'm really close to you because I don't have to engage in the funny thing where we pretend the food is good in order to show what sort of person I am. I'm showing how close to you I am by being being direct about it. So bullshit has a purpose in showing things. The stories, true or false, that politicians choose to tell are communicating something about the kind of person the politician is and the kind of person they're trying to appeal to. In essence, when Trump says unemployment is 40%, he is actually, he he did say this in 2016, he said, I don't believe these experts, 5% they said is, no, I've heard 30%, 40%. He said, I've heard 30 40%. Um, It's not 40%. But when he says that, he can be communicating he can be communicating a whole lot of things about whose side he's on and whose side he isn't on the american worker disregarded he's not on the side of the experts who compile statistics in offices in washington he is communicating a lot through the bullshit and it is because politicians communicate through bullshit that it persists because there's a sort of honesty to it or there's an, inf- there's an information value to it, not an honesty, but an information value to it that people, recipients of that information, find useful. And I want to finish with the, the, the one point, the one area where I think there's something, something going on between where Richard's talk is and mine goes, which is the information that you really get from a politician and the stuff they spew out. And the information that the public actually want, by the way, they don't want to know how much is being spent in real terms on the health service this year compared to last year. They don't want to know all the detail about policy. We we all understand that. What they want to know is one piece of information, maybe two, whose side are each of these people on? Are they on my side? Or are they on someone else's side? and bullshit is a very good discriminator in that regard and so a lot of what you're seeing is about politicians trying to signal the people they're appealing to and of course what what Hillary did was try to appeal very broadly by the way which meant that she fell flat on certain of the kind of portions of the population for whom Trump was saying I really really am on your side and I'm not going to to hide it, or I'm not going to try and p- p- trying to appeal to the other lot. I totally am your person. So I think that is a lot of what is going on. And I, I think where this gets you to is that tribalism and division, which is where the US is crazily going, where we are much more than I can remember it in my lifetime, tribalism begets bullshit, and bullshit begets tribalism. Because the bullshit is about trying to say, I'm on your side and not on their side. So it kind of enhances the sense of us, them, inside a group, outside a group, two sides. Bullshit fuels that, and bullshit and tribalism begets bullshit, because if you're in the tribe, you will believe the bullshit that your tribe spews. And that is the one area, I have to say, where I think we stop engaging, when it's important, we stop engaging our sort of thoughtful, cognitive, system two, rational brain. It becomes just a matter of badge of honour, membership of a tribe, membership of a group. Um, I don't know, how many of you put hashtag FBPE on your... Twitter name, this is a kind of a, 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 an expression of I'm, an, I'm a strong Remainer. It's all over Twitter. Um, and it's essentially, it's all part of a tribalising of political discourse. And Trump does it. Trump totally throws things into public uh, conversation purely in order to work up one, one group and set them against another. So tribalism is enhanced by bullshit and the bullshit is enhanced by tribalism. Just as football crowds by the way two opposing teams two opposing crowds someone falls in the box did he dive was he fouled the two the two the two crowds will take a very different view <laughs> of the same essentially same piece of data. And that's just the game the tribalism and bullshit are I think the areas where politics primates uh, you know, really begin to, 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 to link up. And so I will just end with my thought, which is what I say to my friends who think the world's going to hell in a handcart, Britain's, you know, uh, it, it's all a big mess, and public discourse has collapsed into post-truth um, infamy. I say, if you want to end, if you want to end, if you want to reduce bullshit in public discourse and you don't like where it's gone in the last couple of years, because I think there has been an increase, you have to reduce the tribalism. You have to make the other side feel better about themselves, feel you have respect for them, and you're listening to them. And the more you do that, and the more self-critical you are about your own case, the more they will trust you and offer then to be more self-critical about their case. Obviously, if you call them a dimwit because they believed all the rubbish they were told by Boris Johnson, Instead of yielding to your view, this is my tactical advice to remains, instead of yielding to your view, they're going to dig in and double down on their view. And I think that's where we've got. And it's very difficult when societies are very tribal, utterly divided. It's incredibly difficult for one side to say, hey, look, we'll be nice to the other lot, Um, and, you're really, and show respect because they think they might, may not be reciprocated by the other side. And I think that's where we are. So we're locked into a kind of a mini phase of degraded public discourse with more bullshit than there should be. Not because we're irrational or stupid, but because there's a lot of tribalism and a lot of signalling about which tribe is which and whose side we're all on. Thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you very much indeed. That was fascinating, and thank you for the uh, gooseberry pie story, Evan. <laughs> now I understand why I hate dinner parties so much. So I like the idea that that this is only a mini phase, Evan. Do you think Do you think that there is a chance that we're going to revert back to uh, truthful politics?
3: Well. I- I mean, you know, it, a mini phase could last anything from two months to uh, to, to to thirty years. Um, so politics is never going to be truthful, truthful, because politicians are selling, and anybody selling is going to be putting a positive gloss on what they're what they're saying. So that's always going to be there. But I, I think we have reached a particularly dysfunctional. Uh, I think it has become particularly dysfunctional. But I think. Going back to the kind of days when politicians merely said, "I won't put up taxes," and we all disregarded it because we thought they probably would put up taxes, um, would, be a, would, would be refreshing. I, I, I mean, I, I think I'm, I think I'm an optimist by nature, and I, I think some of these divisions will heal. But I, but you know, we're, we're talking years, not not months, aren't we?
1: Okay. We'll all dig in for that then. Um, and Richard, I wanted to ask you whether you think you can ever... Can you ever use the term lying when you're talking about uh, non-humans, do you think?
2: Well, I think to use it properly, you have to have some evidence that the animals have an ability to understand the mental states of others. Because t- to be guilty of lying, you have to understand what you're doing. Nobody imagines that the moth that flicks open its wings understands that it is momentarily creating (laughs) the impression that there's something big and fierce down here. It just does it. Um, In the case... I mean, obviously, as a psychologist interested in the evolution of human abilities, I'm really interested in which animals are capable of deceiving or understanding things in an intentional way. Um, And I think the evidence, that's why I'm very interested in the evidence that great apes can. And I suppose you could then say, yes, you could say that chimpanzees and gorillas may be deliberately lying.
3: Sorry, Richard, is there a distinction between what they do within their own group and to other groups? Are they they allowed uh, to be more horrible and and lying to the other people outside? uh,
2: To other groups, they're simply aggressive. Or they flee. So, so it it's never it's really not comes sophisticated down enough to sophisticated and discussion. No. Okay.
3: no, no. It would be interesting. Maybe we'll reach that point. I don't know. It's not impossible, yeah. the Democrats yes. and Republicans. <laughs> yes.
1: Do you think that there is something about um, the amount of information that is available to us these days that has caused politics just to go far more to engage the instinctive brain? Just because there's just so much information, people are almost like, I actually can't be bothered to look into this.
3: You have a go on that one first, because you, I think that's a
2: a good question. I I guess I think that because we have the choice of so many different streams of information, um, it may be that people are unintentionally always choosing streams that they find rewarding. Mm. And, you know, the example of Fox News versus CNN is an obvious one. But, I mean, I'm old and out of date. I suspect there are hundreds more streams on the Internet and the social media that I'm not even aware of. Twitter feeds and people who might be followed that give out what I'd probably call grossly misleading information. But if I had a different mindset, I would say, oh, yeah, great more evidence for what I truly believe in. And I wonder if we are all rather packaged into what streams of information we're selecting. You know, when I was a kid, you could, yes, there was BBC and ITV, and there was a range of newspapers, and everyone understood that some of them were more right-wing, some of them were more left-wing. It was all rather simple. But now there's
3: an almost unlimited
2: number of streams. So in that sense, I think the answer
3: is yes. I think the answer is to some extent yes, uh, Rachel, because I think with the more information there is, and there is a hell of a lot of information around, and the more... I mean, we can zone out of it, by the way. That is a, an option for all of us. But for people who are uh, enticed into to, uh, processing the information available, particularly on social media, um, you need rules of thumb for making sense of it. And if you don't have much information, you can really pay attention to it. If it's just coming thick and fast, you need really sharp rules of thumb that are going to process it. And most of the rules of thumb that have been devised on social media for processing information by users, I surmise, please tell me I'm wrong, um, is, does this come from someone on my side or come from someone on the other side? Which is why, by the way, I always say, again, I say to my, to my friends, it's true that a lot of bullshit comes out of this you know your opponents mouths but you don't have to worry about that because you never really believed boris johnson on brexit anyway you're immune to boris johnson on brexit you have to worry about the friendly fire the bullshit that's been pos- posted on your thing and your rule of thumb is is it's from my mate or my like-minded you know soulmate um, and therefore I will believe it and like it and then re- and share it. And um, that's really the sort of the worrying thing about the echo chambers uh, Richard's talking about, that we, that it really does, the rule of thumb we're using is I believe it if it supports my worldview. And that's a really bad way of yeah. deciding on stuff because we know that there's confirmation bias and we know mm-hmm. that we have, we have all sorts of um, abilities to kind of, Persuade us. We didn't talk about self-deception. Sorry, that, because, oh, yeah. because sorry, a lot of the time, this was a, the, is, is, we believe it. It's not that we're lying or that they're lying. We've all just convinced ourselves of this stuff, and and that means it's um, it's even more powerful when you when you when you persuaded yourself it's true, and then you spread it around. So I, I think the echo chamber thing is worrying. Because it fosters the divisions that, that 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 stop people processing and then the information and you know, I just believe this. And so I think it is it sort of behoves us all to try and think about are we are we being too ready to believe stuff that supports our, our world.
1: Uh you've spoken about how you have system one and system two brains. What can we do to engage system two brains better so we can think more rationally?
3: That's a really it's a very, very good question. I mean, just think harder about stuff and sort of make it a system two activity rather than system one one that's the answer um i will just say i i've I sat down and interviewed daniel kahneman who sort of whose taxonomy it, 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 it's always associated with um and he said um it's really hard to overcome your instincts so if your instinct is you know, to believe this or to believe that. If your instinct is to do something, um, you'll find it you'll find it quite difficult to quite difficult to override it. And so he said, I, I, I think I think that gives you a second way of doing it, which is to make sure you're not always trusting your own instinct. That you have, if you like, you pay attention to a range of different sources, and you. You subject yourself and your beliefs to external criticism, so that at least any instincts you may have that may be biasing your beliefs may be attacked or or, or, or spotted by someone else. So, in other words, don't judge yourself; get someone else to help you judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, you know, that's it, it. That's why I always say. To you know, you should have a lot of sources. You shouldn't just read one, you should read different sources. Unless it's the BBC, in which case you can just rely on that <laughs> as the only, yeah. only source you need. But apart from that, um, I think sort of multiple self-critique is the, is the way.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the only thing I would add to that is it's not bad luck that... I, I think Kahneman's view is right, that most of our everyday processing is done in the instinctual, <laughs> primate-like system one, whatever you call it, way. It isn't bad luck. (laughs) It's because it's much faster. Life is too short to work everything out. And you simply could not switch on your careful, rational, (laughs) thoughtful, cognitive, plodding way of evaluating everything. The ones that did that were eaten by the lion, I think. Yes, (laughs) I I think so. Yes. (laughs) Um... Uh, and most of the time, system one instinctual methods work really well because they are honed over a very long evolutionary period. They're not relying on a recently evolved propositional system that <laughs> may be quite closely tied to language evolution in you know, maybe even hundreds of thousands of years rather than millions of years. So you have to be sparing on what you think hard about as well.
3: Do we not have to distinguish between disregard of facts and other points? but let's say, just stick with disregard of facts, between when we're in a selling mode and when you're in an executive mode. Uh, when you are in a selling mode, there is a negotiation going on or in an election you're choosing between two candidates and so on, but if you're an executive and you speak to employees or speak to shareholders and with disregard of facts, that's immoral? Uh, You have tipped over into a a different kind of behavior. I think Uh, think the distinction is, And maybe even mental illness. Yeah, I I mean, I think, that, I think there's something in that, actually. I think you, you have to ask why this person is disregarding the facts. Um, one reason might be to persuade us of something untrue. I don't think it is generally in that because it's so easily falsifiable. Um, another is, you know, is to show you're on someone's side um, or you're, you're kind of sympathising with them or that you're, you're part of their of their group or you're you're, you're hearing them. Um, If none of those obvious rationales exist, then disregarding facts is probably not a good idea. However, there are leadership places, leadership roles, where disregarding facts may be useful. A general trying to motivate troops may well find that you don't want to give a fully rational account of the risks that they're facing um, because they're not going to do the job as well. And there are sort of ethical issues about whether you confront people with the truth of what's happening, but somehow disregarding the facts and inspiring them with poetry, in, in, you know, in your prose is perhaps a better way of leading in that particular situation. If it's a corporate chief executive to shareholders, I think most successful shareholders would regard <laughs> disregarded facts by their kind of the bosses of the companies they own as to be a rather negative indicator of the talents of the uh, of the executive so um, I I mean I think it's 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 really about mental illness if you cannot see a purposeful reason for the disregard then yeah perhaps yeah
0: Uh, my question is about how we educate people I was very lucky my dad worked for the news my dining table was all about debating every issue the imaginable and where your sources came from um, that's not standard education in schools. Do you think we should be educating people that way? If not, how do you think we should educate people?
3: Do you want to have a go at that? <laughs> no, not really. I'm sure that's for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, OK, so, so first of all, a lot of what, what I'm saying is about the will rather than the, than the, than the knowledge. So um, a lot of people who are vulnerable to bullshit are actually very educated people. Who are very tribal and so they believe it even with their very good education. So that, that's the first bit. That I think, I, I genuinely think that, the, that, the, that the, 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 the question has the danger of being stuck in a model that thinks kind of rational intelligence is, is, is what's dictating our kind of responsiveness to, you know, do we think stupid people Uneducated people listen to television adverts more than educated people. Nah. That's why advertisers want rich, educated people to watch their ads rather than less educated, poorer people. That's why the Financial Times is full of ads and um, has educated readers. And it's full of ads. So, So I don't think it's all about education. That's my first point. But I do think educating people is a really, really good idea. And I particularly think educating them in information literacy. And educating them in points like, you are full of biases. You're full of cognitive limitations. You're always thinking tribally. And you're full of confirmation bias. And you've no idea what kind of um, affection you have for the status quo against models that would be uh, much better, but which involve a sort of transitional... So you're full of, full of, I didn't use the word transitional there with any reference to Brexit, by the way. I know you're suddenly <laughs> thinking, is he, is he saying he's a lever? No, he's not saying that. Um, so, but, so, so teaching people about how to think, teaching them not just to believe the first thing they read in the web, teaching people the difference between the BBC, the New York Times, um, and some unsourced piece of garbage that's just sort of landed into their uh, Facebook timeline. That I really think is useful. But let's not pretend that the kind of, the poison public discourse we're enduring is a kind of, we're all stupid, lack of education thing, because I think that's much more about the will than it is about the brain power.
2: Yeah. I, I was dodging out of trying to answer the question, because as a scientist, I think it's, of course, should be the answer. And there's, there's rather more to it than that. Uh, I do think that... Uh, in recent years it has become more difficult to expect to see the kind of clear connection between evidence and theory and implication that is sort of fundamental to science, or it should be, um, even from the media, even from the sacred parts (laughs) of the media like the BBC. Um, To me, when experts are brought on to talk about subjects... Uh, I would hope they would help me understand what the evidence is. So I can make my own mind up personally about what the implications are. But very often I notice on all forms of media, experts are brought on for what, what they really think, what they believe. Oh, to me, that's more a matter of religious faith, what they believe. I want to know what the evidence is, why they think it, should I believe it too? Um, I, oh, is there that, is a lack
3: of that, I think. I, I'm gonna I think that is a, a really interesting observation, and I'm not gonna disagree with it. But I would surmise this. I, I actually this just gets into such an interesting area, which is to another piece of the post truth mosaic, which is about belief in experts as mm. opposed to sort of ignoramuses. And um I think the public's problem is just a tiny bit harder than you've suggested there, Richard, which is often it's not ignoramus versus expert. It's two experts who are disagreeing, and the public don't really feel their ability to process the evidence is going to be very, is going to be very well. elevated. So you would want the evidence, but I, I would surmise that a lot of the time the public are really saying... Who of these two people do I believe, rather I, than the sort of the weight of evidence? Because I cannot just, help agreeing, but that's a problem. Right? Yeah, I think. Okay. <laughs> well, it, it could be. It would certainly be a problem if in august places like this, or in kind of where in, in debates that are occurring in academic journals, everyone was just going on the feelings and the looks and the charisma and the way they present themselves. That would be catastrophic. Um, in public debate. I think, it's, I think it's really important the public know where the balance of expert opinion lies. So that would be tragic if the public didn't know most economists think Brexit's a bad idea um, in, in, the, in, the, in the referendum. And if the public didn't realise that, that would, that would be a failure of the media to tell them. But a lot of the time, I think it's really hard to expect the public to process the evidence because it's just gonna be you know, in, in this sort of six minute slot, you're not gonna get it.
2: Well, what, what I mean by process the evidence might be to say, I'm not going to accept that because it, I cannot process the evidence and come out with a good answer. I mean, to give a concrete example from my lifetime, if, if not everyone's here, experts, medical experts, sanctioned by the government and given a great deal of publicity, told us all we should give up fat because it's bad okay. for us. <laughs> yeah. And um, most of this audience will know that the result of that is that most of us did give up fat. Great. Unfortunately, we then made up the calories with carbohydrate, especially simple sugars, which caused obesity and diabetes. Great. The fat actually operates by switching off appetitive behaviour. It makes us feel full. Fat was being really useful. We yeah. should have kept on yeah, with yeah, the yeah, fat. Yeah, yeah. And if we had said, OK, they're saying that, what's the evidence? We would have soon found out there wasn't any.
3: So it's so interesting you mentioned that example because I, I, I quote that example as one where experts have got it totally wrong, and the French yet carried on eating fat and never got fat. Mm. And the Americans stopped eating fat and got fat. Yeah. And now the French, by the way, are stopping uh, eating mm. fat and they're getting fat as well. So it's, um, <laughs> but it's, but not as much as us. But it is, it's, no, you're, you're quite right. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I, this is such a fascinating and completely different discussion, by the way, Rachel. But it, it, it's, uh, it, I, I'm just slightly sceptical that it's in mass media, that, that it's the ordinary public that would have picked up the, the kind of weakness of the evidence it, you're really going to have to delegate sort of that debate to experts. But we must reflect the fact there is an expert debate or that the, that there's dissent and there's kind of, you know, consensus and where the consensus is and where the dissent is. But um. I, 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 I think really hard about that and I... Um, I think it's it's just really interesting. I think they
2: could have worked out that probably nobody had done the experiment of taking one (laughs) randomly selected group of people and feeding them on fat (laughs) and another randomly selected group of people and cutting fat out. They would soon have realised there was no experiment behind it.
1: It Is um, social media and uh, reporters are just another way for politicians to, as you say, use bullshit?
3: I know you wanted to use the word bullshit in a big pub before. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> is social
1: media a way for, well, is social media a way for people to use bullshit, was
3: it? For politicians to do so. I mean, it, it, look, it, what, what, social media has been really important, and it has become a way for politicians to propagate bullshit. And a a reason is, is that it is an unintermediated form of communication. So until Twitter came along, American presidents couldn't directly talk to the American public except on big state moments. They would normally have to go on a TV programme and go through one of these pesky interviewers who would probably ask them a difficult question if bullshit was forthcoming. Twitter allows you to message it your own way, with nobody able to stop you putting it out, not even your own staff, however hard they try, (laughs) and so you can then, you have the unintermediated message, so it does lead, I think, to the the politicians being able to spread more bullshit than perhaps they did in in the past. I wouldn't overestimate this, I wouldn't overstate this though, because they were really quite capable of lots of bullshit in the past um, without having Twitter, you know, Twitter, political bullshit was not invented uh, in 2007. It really, it really, it really has been around for much longer. But I think it has, I think it has made it sort of easy for the politicians to do that. And I think in, in a funny kind of way, I think it's actually sometimes quite useful because it's sort of, you, it, it you, you. I think it's useful data to a, the public, to the voters is this person someone who uses bullshit? Or is this someone who doesn't use bullshit? So perhaps if you have pesky interviewers always getting in the way of the, of the good politicians and the bad politicians or the bullshitters and the non-bullshitters, perhaps it's harder for the public to know who's bullshitting and who isn't bullshitting actually sometimes. So you know, the uninter- having some platform for brief, unintermediated communication is, is, is perhaps useful for the political, political discourse.
0: Hi, um, I'm Mazza from King Solomon Academy, and my question is, if, if, us, if as humans we are irrational and almost agents of socialization, can humans truly look at a situation objectively?
3: I think that was his one for you, Richard.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I thought it was economists who are keen on rationality. Um, I mean, in a technical sense, Uh, No. But in most everyday senses, I think people are perfectly capable of casting a situation in a way that they can be objective about it. I mean, maybe not if it's about their love life, for instance. You probably can't cast it in a way that's objective enough for you to be rational. But if it's a matter of economics or... or, uh, uh, the law, or something like that. I think it's it might be technically true,
3: but in reality, not not really. I think this is a brilliant question. I, I, mm. I'm 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 a little. I'm going to be a bit stronger than Richard. I, I don't really think we're capable of, of of processing information rationally about anything that really we really really care about. I mean, I think it's um, mm. your hopes dictate what you're looking for when you're. I, I, I just think it's, it's really... I mean, look, if I said, what chance is there are of a coin coming up heads? I think most of us would probably be capable of, a kind of an objective assessment of that probability. So you can't say that we wouldn't be ever able of objectivity. But it's really interesting that, that Richard picked the love life as an example, because I think we all agree we're not objective judges of our love life. So that's certainly one where we wouldn't be able to. Now let's go to work uh, and think about our life at work. And you know, do we want to do this? Should we do this? I, I, is it a good idea to do that? I mean, you know, when I was working on the bloody 10 o'clock news, I tell you, every day there was a, a story would come up on the one evening when you didn't want to work because you had something on. And you would, you would have to appraise the story and advise the editor of the bulletin whether the story was important or not and had to be covered on the night's bulletin. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you, if you've got theatre tickets, it makes a big difference (laughs) to whether you think the story is important or not. Um. You don't. So it's kind of... If you're invested in something, it's really, really hard to exert professional judgment, which is why, by the way, society should go to some effort to remove conflicts of interest so that, you say, the person who's standing in the election shouldn't be the one who's running the election because, you know, it would only be human for them to find you know, all sorts of reasons which they will persuade themselves are perfectly legit. They're not duplicitous or horrible. They're, no, they're just human and they will persuade themselves that it's right to behave in a particular way. Oh, by the way, it suits them. Uh, alongside it so i i i think being aware of your own biases and your own kind of the difficulty of appraising this objectively the humility that should give us all about our judgment to me is one of the most important lessons of uh of how to how to learn and how to look at things that was a lovely example from which we've all profited now. We know <laughs> how to interpret the news. <laughs> but
2: is, is what you're saying, really, that we can be fairly objective about other people's well, arguments, but, I but think, not about our own? I think
3: probably, it, which is back to this point about how do you get, you know, invoke your system to rational brain, and I was saying, well, you get other people to help you. I think it is, it's really important if you're invested in something to try and get someone who's not invested in it. So you're looking at two houses. You love one. The other one is in the right place for, for work. You know, just get somebody else to, to sort of give a reality check to you to help you come to your judgment. That'll kind of kick-start your... your um, yeah, sort of take you out of your prejudices a bit, I think, and, and, and try and make you think around it.
1: I mean, all we've learned is that some massive economic story got buried in 2006 <laughs> because Evan had Romeo and Juliet tickets, but fine. Uh, Right, we have one more question. I believe the lady has the microphone. Thank you. Okay, there we are. Yeah,
0: just um, on what Evan said about tribalism, my accent gives away that I'm from a pretty tribal place, and uh, the politics there have lasted in those tribes for more than 30 years And I wonder what your thoughts are on whether there's any hope in societies like Northern Ireland, where every time there's a middle ground offering, the two tribes crawl back into their trenches. And is there any possibility of us moving away from extreme Democrat, Republican politics? And also, do you think that the politicians themselves believe that by pushing the tribes to the extreme uh, extremes of their sides they get a better turnout because people will, will not turn yeah. out if they're not really that interested I think <clears throat> No, no, people be feeling same.
3: strongly gets the turnout uh, Look, it's a, really, it's a really good question and I, I, I do think about the persistence of tribal division in Northern Ireland as a kind of a very negative warning actually about uh, not wanting to let people get locked into tribal thinking that becomes self-reinforcing and, um, and you, you, because it's, it's often just very damaging to kind of sensible, sensible discourse, and people will go to quite some cost to show that they're in a tribe or to strengthen their tribe at the expense of the other. So it is, uh, you know, it's really interesting that it can be self-reinforcing. You can get locked into it, can be a nightmare, um, and it can become very, very costly. And, and Northern Ireland is not the only example. In the world, and one um, am I, do I think we are sort of in danger or Republicans and Democrats are in danger of kind of entering that kind of thing actually i'm uh, I, I probably am more optimistic that that could become lock, locked in simply because. I, I don't know, just, maybe just because I'm a born optimist. I shouldn't trust my own, my own, my own instincts. I mean, I, I just am optimistic. I think, you know, essentially the demographics mean when you look at particular generations, they're not as divided as the population as a whole. So as, as older people grow too old to live, by which I mean they die. I um, don't know why I'm saying it like that, stupid. Um, as the older lot die, you might well find that the schisms among younger people are are somewhat different and are, 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 are redefined. But ancient rivalries, Capulets and Montagues, to come back to Romeo and Juliet, um, ancient rivalries and persistence of them is, is, is really, I, can do, I think, really just where you don't want to go because that's mm. very costly. Your choice of example
2: almost anticipates the only thing I could contribute. That, that is the one force that counts against these rivalries is sex. It's perfectly possible to fall in love with somebody from the other tribe, and that is, it is what part what of Romeo demolishing did. the. Yep. Well, yes, yes, quite.
3: So there you go. <laughs> advice for Northern <laughs> Ireland. There we are.
0: <laughs> That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a big difference. And if you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the royal institution. As little as $1 a month, and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases, and digital freebies. Thanks!